Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 299 Technological Determinism. In this episode, we're joined by author and futurist Alex Sujung King Peng to talk about his career as a technology forecaster and why he has a problem with the notion of technological determinism. This is part one of a two part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn back again for another interview. And I'm joined today over Google Hangout with our special guest, Alex Sujung Kim Peng. Alex, it's awesome to have you here. Thanks so much for taking the time to uh, chat with the geeks. Oh, it's a pleasure. Very good to be on the show. Yeah, and and definitely in terms of geek, we were talking about before the interview, um, you sort of consider yourself more on the geek side of the Buddhist geek spectrum. Um, I do want to get into that with you and sort of hear a little bit about your background with both. That said, I, I will sort of share a little bit to sort of introduce people to your background and kind of where you're coming from. First to say that you've just recently released a new book, uh, came out August 20th. So um, this is something you've been working hard at, I'm sure. And mm-hmm. it's called uh, The Distraction Addiction. And I love the subtitle. It's getting the information you need and the communication you want without enraging your family, annoying your colleagues, and destroying your soul. You know, it's amazing that the Little Brown Art Department was actually able to get the whole subtitle on here instead of having to, you know, run it around the back or go to a second volume. So... You know, it's the or if, you know, the first the first way that you can see or if how you know how much energy Little Brown itself put into this. It's awesome, and I also want to mention for people that are interested in finding your work online, um, you are available uh, on Twitter. You you're tweeting some mm-hmm. awesome stuff. I love uh, seeing what you're tweeting, and it's at uh, at askpeng, and That's then right. also um, you're blogging at contemplativecomputing.org. That's right. Which is a which is a great um, great little title, contemplative computing. <laughs> so um, we're going to explore that. Uh, but first, sure. I wanted to kind of uh, hear a little bit about your background, your history. Um, I was wondering if you could share a bit about your um, dual background in both technology and then also meditation, contemplation. Mm-hmm. I know technology is something that you've been immersed in for quite a long time, and meditation's maybe something that you've picked up a little later in life. Mm-hmm. So, sort of, my background is sort of. Uh, I actually started out my life as uh, doing history of science and technology, and so sort of did a, a PhD in that, and then taught that for a few years, and then after that, went into sort of publishing. Just to, just at the point where sort of um, publishing was starting to recognize that the internet was changing all kinds of aspects of uh, the way that people wrote, um, the way that the kind of economics of, in my case, reference publishing. I was um, the managing editor of Encyclopedia Britannica for several years. Kind of in between the time when the era of Encarto, you know, which came on those, or of, you yes. know, the DVDs. Um, in, between, in between that period and Wikipedia. So it was uh, really 
very, very interesting time to be working for uh, a 200 plus year old sort of institution. And so for me, that was interesting because it was everything I had read about you know, the history of media and social change playing out right in front of me. Wow. And so after several years of that, I relocated back from Chicago, where Britannica is based, to California and have been here ever since and have worked primarily as a technology forecaster and futurist, which is really just the same. It's the same thing as being an historian of science, only you're talking in the future tense rather than in the past tense. The kinds of questions you're interested in, the tools you use, the issues that concern you, they're really all the same. Um, and so I've spent a long time thinking about or studying how people use technologies and sort of the worlds that they make with them, both sort of, you know, the, uh, the, the physical worlds of sort of networks and offices and structures, but also the kind of psychological networks as well. And you know, their ideas about what technology ought to do, how new technologies affect the way that we think about the world or about ourselves, um, how we imagine what the future can be like. And I got into a contemplative practice about five or six years ago, because you know, when you're working as a futurist, a lot of your work is very project-based, it's very client-focused, um, you're always thinking a lot more about the next thing than the last. And after several years of doing that, I was finding that, like the character in Nick Carr's book, The Shallows, that it was really feeling like it was having an effect on my ability to just remember basic stuff and to think complicated thoughts. Now, I would go into a room to get something, and by the time I got there, I would have to remind myself what it was that, you know, that I was doing. And, you know, for someone who had spent his entire life basically, um, you know, sort of getting, you know, getting ahead on sheer, uh, sort of sheer brain power as opposed to self-discipline or anything, this was really a pretty scary prospect. And so as part of sort of my effort to, and really to kind of take a step back and rebuild sort of my mind and my attention and to figure out the more general problem of how to develop them or kind of maintain maintain attention and focus in the digital age, um, I started meditating, and uh, and it's something that I mean it was one of several things that I was doing that was you know much better for me than um, you know, trying to sort of read massive numbers of articles while you know, in line to get on a plane to go somewhere to do a workshop for clients. It's an interesting way to live, but not necessarily a terribly sustainable way of life. And really what I, what I wanted to answer was the question of, was this kind of mental state, this kind of perennial perpetual distraction, you know, either something that was now sort of inevitable and inescapable in today's digital world, or was it something that sort of we could, you know, or if we could exert some control over? And that's where the idea about contemplative computing was born. And, and really it's about 
um, what you can do to sort of change your relationship with information technologies, with you know, smartphones and social media, so that you go from being of perpetually distracted and mentally fractured the way that I felt I was to being more focused and mindful. And so I think that sort of my, uh, you know, in a way, my sort of engagement with contemplative practices or with Buddhism flows very much from that. You know, more recently, and when I was working on the book, I also started, I kind of discovered writers like Thomas Burton and the great Jewish theologian Abraham Heschel. Um, who wrote a phenomenal book about the Sabbath. And so I realized once I was kind of deeply, sort of fairly far along this road, that what I had gotten into was a set of practices that were you know, by no means exclusively Buddhist, sure. but which you know, had sort of parallels in um, other faiths as well, but which for various kind of curious historical reasons today seem more accessible via Buddhism than through you know, or of Catholicism or, or to Protestantism or, 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 you know, or kind of other channels. Um, and I continue a sort of regular sort of meditation practice. And I've also sort of come to see the ways in which things like um, kind of everyday practices can also sort of can also take on a sort of contemplative quality to them if designed the right way. Mm. So um, the dog is in the office with me as he usually is, but we go out for long walks every evening. And I found that, you know, rather than, you know, take the iPhone and headphones and you know, plug into the news that that's actually a great opportunity to you know, slow down a little bit and maybe try to experience the world the way that, a, you know, the way that a dog does, you know, very, very much in the moment. Um, I can't smell as well as he can. <laughs> You know, on the other hand, he smells terrible. So um, <laughs> that's really that's really okay. But that there are, you know, sort of just as I argue in the book, that there are opportunities for being more mindful about technology and thus being more mindful through technology. You know, so so too is that the case with other kinds of everyday activities. So you know, the long answer to the question is I is that I'm much more geek than Buddhist. And I suspect probably always will be. Nice. And I was curious too. You said you picked up the practice to kind of um, address the issue of this fractured sense of attention. Yeah. Did Did it help? Yes, absolutely. You know, I mean, I think, you know, there were there were a whole bunch of other things that were going on at the same time. You know, sure. sort of. I'd been in this job where I'd pretty much done everything that I could do two or three times, and. You know, when you are a futurist, being in a job that doesn't seem to have a future is a kind of painfully ironic one. You know, that brought a certain amount of baggage as well. But I think that, you know, that, you know, what I find is that if I can think about nothing for even a second, and in, you know, sitting for, you know, sitting for 45 minutes or an hour, I still feel like I'll have you know, a few minutes where I'm really kind of deeply into sort of something, a, a kind of mental state that's very different from sort of my everyday life, right? You know, the first 10 minutes, your body is just kind of settling itself down, or at least mine is. And then there's that phase where the monkey mind is kind of, you know, is still kind of struggling 
Um, you're not trying to get you to think about your Netflix queue or snow cones or, um, you know, sort of how many accelerometers are there in Google's new Moto X cell phone? Um, <laughs> you know, and then eventually it kind of, you know, eventually it sort of fights itself sort of into exhaustion. But, you know, I find that if I can think about nothing, even for a very short period of time, I can think about, you know, the one thing I need sort of to deal with, you know, be it an essay you know, or something for a client. I can think about that one thing for a very long time. You know, and I can tell when or if I don't do it for a while, you know, I start to feel like or if I begin to lose that edge. And you know, fortunately, though, it's a, it is one that you, know, you can get back. So you know, that's the good news. Yeah, and for for anyone who's had a meditation practice and and or who has one, I think what you're saying is definitely familiar uh, familiar news. Good. Um, so so getting more into the sort of content that you explore in the book and that you're exploring mm -hmm. just generally, and I thought there's a few topics in particular I thought would be fun to explore with you. The first one, which uh, we had a nice Twitter exchange about at one point, was uh, around this uh, topic that you said uh, recently to me that you have a bit of an allergy to, which is technological determinism. Um, I was mm -hmm. wondering if you could say a bit about technological determinism and also why it's problematic, you know, why you sneeze every time it comes into view. <laughs> um, what, what is this and why is it a problem? Okay, so the fundamental idea with the, or the simplest definition of technological determinism is of that um, Human, uh, or human history is determined by the course of technologies that sort of, you know, and that um, the ways in which technologies come into being, um, make their way into our lives, affect our world, follows a kind of internal logic that is separate from and in a way kind of inaccessible to human experience. And the problem with this is you know, Wolfgang Pauli once described a criticism of quantum mechanics as so bad it's not even wrong. And I would say that, that the technological determinist sort of position is both wrong and bad. Wrong in the sense that if you go back to, if you look at the history of technology closely enough, what you see is a million little decisions and sometimes some very big ones or very consequential decisions that people make in response to immediate circumstances, whether it's economic stuff, whether it's kind of um, you know, project politics, whether it's design sensibility that give shape, that you know, push technologies in one direction versus another. Afterwards, sort of when something is a roaring success, say, it might seem like, oh, you know, it was always perfectly clear from the outset that um, the technology ought to look like this or should have these properties or would be used in this way. But when you're in the middle of it, you know, when you're building these things or very early on in their history, all that stuff is still very, very fuzzy, very unclear. Likewise, if you look at the other really important thing that I think technological determinism short circuits is the degree to which we as users have power and agency 
over our devices, over our technologies, and the degree to which we are able to shape those interactions and to have them serve our needs or our purposes rather than to have them serve the purposes of their creators or the you know, service providers to which they are sort of still attached via invisible or wireless or contractual connections. And in the work that I'm doing now on contemplative computing, I think this is especially important because you know, we have this sense that our, our devices are both um, inescapable and inevitable, right? That if you want to be sort of a reasonably modern person, then you have to have things like this. And you know, they've got to be with you all the time and always on. And that sensibility can close off the recognition that there are all kinds of ways that you can use these things. You know, ways that, it, it, you know, small things that you can do to turn them, let's say, from constant interrupters to defenders of your attention to very big things that you can do in the way of sometimes turning them all off for extended periods while you, you know, escape to the mountains or, you know, somewhere else. And the fact that they are so much a part of our lives, and you know, it's amazing to think that the smartphone barely even existed seven years ago. Right. Right. You know, I remember being at a conference maybe in 2006 that was sponsored by Nokia, and all the panelists got Nokia N95s, which at that time were you know, the coolest thing in the world. You know, to go from seven years ago, those things barely existing, to, to them being incredible, you know, for many of us being uh, sort of omnipresent, you know, and always on, contributes to a sense that they are inescapable and that they are, and that their presence in our lives is such a good thing that you know, our lives would be made much, much worse by their absence. There's a great uh, writer, technology writer in Seattle named uh, Monica Guzman, who you know, makes the point that taking digital Sabbaths is like having the ocean, is like having an ocean recede. It's like having low tide. And then what happens with, of, with our high-tech lives is that um, the waters kind of slowly come up so that you don't even really sort of notice them. And they bring all kinds of, you know, all kinds of things with them, um, sort of unspoken assumptions, sort of, you know, habits that you just get into without sort of realizing. And that it's only when you let those waters recede that you're able you know, to see down to the bottom and to see all the other things that have come with sort of this tech, uh, technological tide. So that's why I think that uh, uh, that determinism is really problematic because um, it runs counter to sort of the real experience that sort of goes into the making of technologies and it closes off as users our sense of agency and independence and power over devices that often have play a very very big role in our lives and to the degree that we make ourselves sort of less capable of sort of 
managing those relationships, changing them uh, to the to the degree that sort of we give over our uh, sort of our autonomy and our attention to um, uh, to these technologies and to whoever it is who uh, sort of who designs and operates them, um, we make ourselves just a little bit less human. So. Now, other than that, there's absolutely nothing wrong with technological determinism. <laughs> good, good way to end that. You know, I was, <laughs> as you're describing that, you know, I was thinking about some of the um, some of the things like, for instance, search engines. Uh-huh. I, and I'm, I'm curious if you could kind of help me sort of differentiate the difference between um, kind of seeing the necessity of a certain kind of technology that would arise in response to certain conditions. For example, mm-hmm. when all these computers start networking together and there's enough of them, there's enough information out there that suddenly it's like, whoa, wait a second, we need to find a way to kind of be able to search through this and, and, right. and kind of pull up what we need because there's so much data out there. So you could kind sure. of look back and say, oh, well, of course a search engine would arise because that's, mm-hmm. you know, was is, and so so it seems like you're saying that's not necessarily deterministic to say to look back and and see why something would arise. But what's the difference between sort of seeing that kind of perspective and then also the, the difference between that and saying, well, there's variation in how like Google approaches the search engine, what kind of algorithms they use, you know, how okay. it works versus Yahoo or Bing. Like I can see on a feature level or on a surface, on, not even a surface level, because some of those decisions are very deeply affect the nature of it. Um, but like, how could we have avoided with the rise of the internet some sort of services that allow people to kind of make sense of things? And, and is that, isn't that a kind of determinism in a certain way, at least retrospectively? Well, I mean, in the sense that, okay, okay so is demand determinism? Um, you know, I, I suppose my, you know, my first answer is that if you go back to or the early history of Sort of search engines. You know, Yahoo wasn't a search engine, right? Yahoo was a directory. It's a portal, um, right? It was a portal, and you know, sort of, in you know, for that brief glorious period when everybody was a portal, um, every, you know, sort of Alta Vista was a portal, and um, Excite at Home was a portal, and we were all executing. You know, you and I probably were portals, and we, you know, burned through millions of dollars and just don't even remember. Um, <laughs> so. Okay, so the idea that, um, let's say technologies reflect different kinds of company strategies that themselves reflect particular, you know, particular kinds of technical skill or, or um, patents that sort of a company has, and that there's a relate, and that sort of one company will pursue sort of one strategy because of its patent portfolio and another because of its. Okay, that I suppose in a way that that's a kind of contingency that sort of makes a certain amount of sense, right? And that's sort of easy to understand. Now, is there in some larger sense a, you know, was there a, a kind of telos that was unfolding um, right. that through the kind of logic of the internet sort of demanded that someone sooner or later was going to come up with a search engine? Uh, I think my answer is maybe and but i'm not sure how much it matters you know i mean i think that sort of there were you you could make 
you could make a similar argument about lots of different kinds of important technologies. But when all, but I think you know, again, for me, when all is said and done, sort of the big, uh, the big question is, what effect does it have on users' abilities to recognize, sort of their capacity to sort of act as free agents within, you know, sort of within the system, and so did. Doug Engelbart or Tim Berners-Lee set in motion sort of a series of events or lay a groundwork that would have led sooner or later to Larry and Sergey or, you know, in alternate, you know, alternate history timeline, Larry, Larry one and Sergey one or Larry two and Sergey two coming up with something that is Google-like, maybe. And, you know, when we get to the point where we can run history back and do experiments on it, hmm. then, you know, sort of, you know, then we'll know. But I think that you know it's enough to be able to say that even if technology has some kind of teleological bent to it, even if the technological arc of the universe bends toward Google, then even still, you know, that's uh, that is a world that has a lot of has a lot of contingency and opportunity for the exercise of free will and the construction of sort of meaning on sort of on all our parts. Mm. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, thanks for sharing a little bit about that sort of perspective. I, I found consistently that the, uh, the, the deterministic perspective, uh, it, it seems to be strong in, in different sectors of the geek culture, you know, in yes. the humanist world and, you know, in various, you know, Wired Magazine, you know, think there's certain places that you just see that kind of attitude or philosophy sort of infusing the conversation in a way that mm. it's difficult to identify sometimes. The force is strong with this one, yes. And <laughs> even, you know, the, inter or the interesting thing living here is that even with people who spend their days, you know, arguing with fellow engineers about, you know, about feature sets or with interaction designers about you know what the icon should look like and what kind of user model we have or marketing people about who this thing should be marketed to even they share a kind of sense that there's a kind of disconnect between the stories that they tell about uh, about their daily life and work which is all about you know, kind of sort of politics and negotiation and solving problems in unexpected ways versus the kind of higher level story that you tell about how, you know, sort of about how technologies come to play a role in our lives. And part of it may be that if you fight enough of these battles and you kind of lose enough of them, um, that you have a sense that um, you know, your own agency as a designer is... You know, bounded by the needs of companies or of you know, marketing, or that you know, it's such a familiar story that you know, even when you have plenty of evidence in your own, you know, your own daily life and your own resume, it's really it's still really easy to default and to think that well, you know, the rest of the world really does operate this way. Um, you know, the particular, the particular battles that I see, the decisions that I'm involved in, seem really small compared to these right. gigantic systems in which we all live. 
So, yeah, yeah. And that, and that seems like the tension that, you know, that, that exploring this whole thing of determinism brings up is this feeling mm-hmm. of, you know, to what degree is my agency or autonomy m- make a difference in the midst of these really right. powerful systemic yeah. forces? You know, the last thing is that there are plenty of people who work very, very hard to make things look inevitable. Um, you know, hmm. you think, for example, you know, the, the, the really benign example would be um, Moore's Law. The law that says that processing power roughly doubles every 12 to 18 months, right? Um, or if Gordon Moore gave a talk about this in what 1963 or so, arguably Doug Engelbart had even seen it in the late 1950s, and ever since, computing power has followed Moore's law. Well, one of the reasons computing power has followed Moore's law is that. Intel, especially, and AMD and other companies have spent absolutely enormous sums of money and sort of person years making sure that that Moore's law continues to hold. Um, Moore's law around here is treated kind of like the speed of light. It's you know it's not just an observation about progress or about the falling cost of processor speed. It is like a physical constant. And it is unthinkable that Moore's law would ever, you know, would, have, would ever cease to be. That I think is a relatively benign example of kind of determinism brought to life. The idea that that your life is made better if you share everything about it in near real time with sort of with everybody you're connected to on my network is an example of determinism that is a little less benign. What if your friends are all here and as the owner of this social media site, it is very much in my interest for you to communicate a lot with them because there are all kinds of interesting things that I can learn about all of you that I can then analyze and parse and sort of resell to advertisers if you believe that the default state in your life should be sharing through me. And that's an example, I think, of sort of technological determinism that turns into a sort of behavioral determinism. And at that point becomes really, really, really problematic. So, um, you know, yes. however, you know, once again, aside from all of that, there's really nothing wrong with the idea of technological determinism. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, 
visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.